She's telling us that God will cast down the unrighteous, the tyrants. She is speaking almost like one of the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. This is Chapter, Verse, and Season, a lectionary podcast from Yale Bible Study. Welcome back to another conversation about an upcoming text from the Revised Common Lectionary. Each week here, you listen in on a pair of professors from Yale Divinity School while they talk through what they found interesting about a particular passage. We hope this podcast is helping you think about these familiar Bible texts in new ways. I'm your host, Elena Martin, Episcopal priest and Yale Divinity School student. In this episode, we have Felicity Harley McGowan, research associate and lecturer, and Bruce Gordon, Titus Street Professor of Ecclesiastical History. They're discussing Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55, which is appointed for Sunday, December 19th, to close us out for the season of Advent. The text is read for you by student Misty Kiwak-Jacobs. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. This is really one of the most famous passages in in the New Testament. It's sung, it's prayed, it's read all the time. The words are very familiar to us. The image of Mary is being represented so many times in art and and music. But Mary is a a very interesting character. In antiquity, as, as you know, and in the Middle Ages, and particularly in the High Middle Ages, she was this dominant figure in Western Christianity, but also in the East. But in Western Christianity, she was this the great intercessor, the great protectress. She was uh, the most holy. The Marian devotion flourished in art and literature across Europe and, and then across the ocean. But for Protestants, it's been a a very different story. Many of the reformers themselves, the first generation, like Martin Luther, were deeply devoted to Mary, but yet their theology took them in a very different direction because 
no longer could she have this role as an intercessor pleading for mercy. She lost that because they said that detracted from Christ as the as the sole mediator of salvation. So what do they to make of, of Mary? Who does Mary become? And I think for many Protestants, particularly I think of my own Reformed tradition, I'm not quite sure what to make of, of Mary. She's so prominent in the Gospels. Yet what are we to make of her? In the Reformation, when they took away her sort of intercessory powers, they made her a model of virtue. She became a kind of image for the holy household, the mother, the father, the patriarchal order of this. Obedience and, and the language of, of humility or lowliness that is here. It's interesting because I think even the ways in which we study or have understood the history of Mary's uh, reception, I guess, within early Christian communities and, and the growth of what we understand to be a cult of Mary is in many ways informed by some of those Protestant views that want to see a very muted interest in Mary, even to the extent that for some of the earliest Christian representations of her as a Roman mother holding her child, some scholars literally describe some of these images as Mary functioning just as a kind of chair for the Christ child and that that's the focus for uh, early Christians, that Mary has no other function other than just to um, be a safe pair of hands and a vessel and uh, and that's all very nice and then uh, she's accepting and um, loving but but her role is quite muted and yet when we when we look closely at at some of the earliest images and the context in which they appear and the obvious interest that early Christian communities really from the fourth and fifth centuries have in her. She is a woman of great strength and sometimes uh, presented in the guise of an empress such that she has the, the trappings of an imperial court to to evoke something of her authority, uh, I think, as well as her her role as a a guide and a figure uh, for Christians, and we see this develop in in many different ways. Perhaps one of the most captivating images, which you and I have talked about, is this image of the Madonna of Mercy, where she's shown as a standing upright woman with a large. A cloak that encompasses sometimes it can encompass representations of cities or of communities or of particular saints sometimes of, of donors too and I think when I first encountered this image traveling I'm, I'm thinking of my first visit to Venice where in all kinds of media above door frames or on churches the repetition of this image is was like a different language about what who Mary could be. So I think the, it's very interesting the way in which we receive certain traditions and that uh, sometimes we have a, a fairly one-dimensional 
uh, image of Mary that we quite like and it's very beautiful. We love we love Renaissance representations of the Annunciation and uh, these beautiful uh, scenes of of tenderness between Gabriel and Mary in conversation. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think this this passage, reading it again, demands us to retrieve some of those readings that have been uh, muted by our inheritance, I guess, from some of these Protestant traditions of of a one dimension and almost airbrushing out some of the feistiness of, of Mary and this vibrant language here that's quite confrontational in many in many ways, uh, that reference here to to the fear of God which which of course in our contemporary context we relate that word to negative feelings, things that we don't want to we don't want to experience or that we associate with weakness even. Um, and yet this is something that speaks to a core in Mary that is bold and a an apprehension of of God's greatness and goodness that that somehow is is watered down by some of those other um, lily wand waving <laughs> Gabriel yeah. images. The, the the song I think as you have us see is full of complexity. We have this image as you were saying of a sort of blessed Mary, and one of the first things in many of those paintings of the Annunciation is this emphasis on her humility, this young girl, and she certainly was young, uh, receiving and opening her heart and with obedience and humility. But yet the language of the the song is is not one that, that resonates so easily for us. Humility is not a word that we use much except possibly saying you should show more humility, you should be more more humble. But it's not something I doubt there are very many sermons that kind of extol humility as as a as a way of expressing the Christian life. We're much more encouraged to engagement, action, participation, to uh, enthusiastic expressions of faith. Humility, that's or lowliness is the King James says this is this that these are not words that we use. And as you pointed out, fear. Fear has a long history in your Christian theology and devotion as the beginning point of, you know, the, the, the fear of God is the beginning point. But again, that's not a that's not a term that that resonates easily for us, just for the very reasons that you said. But you I like the way you talked about her feistiness because in again in the King James language, scattered the, the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, that famous phrase. That she she becomes a kind of prophetic, almost political figure at the end of this song. She's telling us that God will cast down the unrighteous, the tyrants. She is speaking almost like one of the prophets of the Hebrew Bible here. That uh, this is this is what will happen. And it, I think the song challenges us to to you know do do we believe these things? Do we? How do we connect with fear? How do we connect with humility? Do we connect? the political tumults in our age where good and evil seem to wrestle all the time, is do we see God as active in that? Even as Christians, we may not feel comfortable talking about that. So 
I think that the song really challenges us to come out of ourselves and engage with language that is challenging. Thanks for listening to Chapter, Verse, and Season. And thank you to everyone who has sent us their feedback so far. We love hearing from you. If you want to be in touch, visit YaleBibleStudy.org and click the Contact tab. And on that website, you can also find more Bible study resources, read the show notes or the transcript from this episode, and also find all of our past episodes. That's YaleBibleStudy.org. Remember to rate this podcast if you haven't already. Give us five stars. It just takes a second, and it helps other new listeners find us. And follow us on Twitter at BibleYale. Chapter, Verse, and Season is produced by Joel Baden, Kelly Morrissey, and me, Helena Martin. Our theme music is by Calvin Linderman. Thanks to the Center for Continuing Education at Yale Divinity School, as always. And thank you to Professors Harley McGowan and Gordon for joining us this week. We'll be back with another conversation from chapter, verse, and season.